like to welcome everyone. Uh, not really a surprise to see so many people who are interested in one way or another uh, in Winston Churchill. I want to recognize Ron Luke, who is the president of the local uh, Churchill Society, uh, who has made the visit uh, by Alan Packwood uh, possible. Uh, I want to uh, recognize Arthur Nicholson. See, yes, here another Churchill author who has driven from Houston to be able to be with us this afternoon. And I want to uh, welcome uh, the first visit by Tom Ricks, who is the famous uh, military columnist for the New York Times. Uh, this brings me to my introduction to Ellen Packwood, but I want to preface it by saying that it brought memories back of a book that was published as a result of a conference here at the University of Texas in 1991, it seems like it's about a quarter of a century ago, but in a very long time. Uh, this was when Robert Blake, Lord Blake, was a visiting professor in the English department because the chairman of the English department thought that he had written the greatest biography written in any language. It wasn't about Churchill, it was about Disraeli. Uh, but it was while Lord Blake was here that we got the idea in the early 1990s that the time was right for a reassessment of Churchill. In other words, a question of the myth of Churchill versus the reality of Churchill, the personality and the historic figure. So we managed to invite a, a lot of people who were all uh, uh, foremost authorities in their own field to give but one example, Field Marshal Michael Carver. Uh, he was a student of uh, Churchill's uh, military strategy. Uh, now we thought by making a reassessment of Churchill that this would be very useful uh, for the general public as well as for fellow historians, but we had no idea how this conference was going to turn out because some people are very, very critical of Churchill. But believe it or not, the conclusion that was reached at the end of the conference was that Churchill was a great man after all. <laughs> so, Alan, we want to welcome you. Uh, Alan is from Churchill College, Cambridge. He is the director of the Churchill Archives, which is one of the foremost archives in Britain, including the... Uh, Thatcher papers, as well as Churchill papers, and you could go on and on. Uh, Alan, we look forward to hearing your assessment of Churchill. Okay, well, Roger, thank you very much for that kind introduction. And I should start by saying snap, um, because I brought my own copy of uh, your book with me um, to get you to sign it. And I have to say, I think that that conference back in um, 1991 was actually incredibly important in opening up Churchill studies and Churchill scholarship. It coincided, as you know, um, really with the, the opening up of the, the, the Churchill archive. Um, so it is a real pleasure to be here. Um, Churchill famously said, you can't make a good speech on iced water. So I was <laughs> delighted to see that we, we have Sherry. I thought it might be useful for me to start with just a few words, a few quick words of context about Churchill College and the Churchill Archive Centre. So Churchill College is located um, in the University of Cambridge. Um, it, it's the first of the modern um, Cambridge colleges to be built. It was built as the National and Commonwealth Memorial to Sir Winston, British National and Commonwealth Memorial to Sir Winston, um, but unusually for a memorial built during his lifetime and built with at least his nominal involvement. Um, he gave his name to the trust which raised the money for the college and he came to the site on the 17th of October 1959, before anything had been built and planted two trees, an oak and a mulberry. Um, he also made what was one of his last public speeches, setting out his vision for the college that was going to bear his name. And interestingly, that vision was that the college should in particular train scientists, technologists, engineers. Because Churchill, of course, was someone who always took a keen interest 
in the potential of science. And I think what this shows is him at the end of this long life and career still looking to the future. It may also have been influenced, of course, by the fact that the Russians had just put Sputnik up into space. <laughs> the Churchill Archive Centre comes a little bit later. Um, we're built in 1973 once it's known that Churchill's papers um, are going to come to the college. And it may interest you to know that we're an American foundation, really. And when you come into the Archive Centre, the first thing that you see on the wall of our Jock Colville Hall is the names of our original founders and donors. And they're all American, um, especially former American ambassadors to the United Kingdom or their families and foundations. And that, I think, is because the Archive Centre is the closest thing in the United Kingdom to one of your great American presidential libraries. It's founded on that sort of a model, so it was a model that these individuals readily understood. We don't have any tradition, any such tradition of presidential libraries in the UK. And in fact, especially in front of American audiences, um, I like to say that we are now the equivalent of four American presidential libraries. <laughs> Because in addition to the, the papers of Sir Winston Churchill, um, as Roger has just hinted, we also have those of Margaret Thatcher, um, which we have opened up to 1989, and we're about to open 1990, the last year of her premiership. We have the papers of Sir John Major, which we're in the process of cataloguing, and we're just waiting on the arrival of the papers of Gordon Brown. Um, but even that is actually just the start of a much bigger endeavour because from the beginning, the idea within the Archive Centre has been to gather around Winston Churchill the papers of his great contemporaries and great successors. And we're now one of the biggest repositories in the United Kingdom for modern personal papers. Politicians, diplomats, military leaders and scientists of the Churchill era and beyond. Um, largely British, um, but one Russian in that we have the papers of Vasily Matrokin, um, the famous KGB um, archivist who spent 12 years copying out the names of KGB operatives and KGB operations um, and whose papers were famously exfiltrated from Russia by our intelligence services. Um, so the real strength of the Archive Centre, as I hope you can see, is in the body of material that's been assembled for researchers under one roof. And our mission is a very simple one. It's to preserve this material for future generations, but it's also to make it as available and accessible as possible. Exactly the same as the mission of the Harry Ransom Centre here. Of course, our core collection are the personal papers of Sir Winston Churchill. Huge collection, some two and a half thousand boxes, estimated one million items. Um, literally starting from the very beginning with his childhood letters and his school reports. And of course, you'll all know that his school reports were not particularly good. Um, this is one example, his first school, St George's School in Ascot. Um, from March, April 1884, um, so Churchill is nine years old. And here you can see the headmaster has written, conduct has been exceedingly bad. He's not to be trusted to do any one thing. And then at the bottom, under general conduct, you've got very bad, is a constant trouble to everybody, and is always in some scrape or other. But the truth, of course, is that he was a, an aristocratic Victorian child, used to having the run of Blenheim Palace. This was a very strict Victorian boarding school with a headmaster who used to cane his young charges till they bled. Um, so the two didn't meet. And I think what you're seeing here, really, is the first manifestation of that sort of famous Churchillian will and stubbornness. He, he refused to fall in with school ways. He also had a, a, a great ability to recover from setbacks. It's that sort of never give in mentality and to turn adversity to his advantage. And this just allows me to show you one of my favourite documents in the collection. This is January 1932. Um, Churchill is in New York and in December 1931 in New York, he is run down by a motor car um, on Fifth Avenue, making the classic British mistake of looking the wrong way as he goes to cross. Um, his response to this is to summon a local doctor, Otto Pick, heart to his bedside at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. And I think you can almost hear Churchill dictating this prescription to Pickhart, which for those of you at the back reads, this is to certify that the post-accident convalescence of the Honourable Winston S. Churchill 
necessitates the use of alcoholic spirits, <laughs> especially at mealtimes. The quantity is naturally indefinite, but the minimum requirements would be 250 cubic centimetres. And you can see that Churchill has written at the top here, keep on hand. Of course, don't need to tell this audience that the reason he needs to keep this on hand is that this is prohibition era New York. So here is Churchill using his accident to overcome prohibition. Um, that's a bit lighthearted. Of course, within the archive, we also have some truly iconic documents and you don't get more iconic than his great wartime speeches and broadcasts. Um, and of course, many of you will know that the way Churchill worked is that he would dictate. The duty secretary would set down his words, first of all, in normal typescript like this, and he would then go through making annotations, alterations, corrections. And of course, where those drafts survive, as they often do, gives you a real insight into his um, thought processes and allows you to see how he's crafting his oratory. Then when the speech is in its final format, it's taken away by the duty secretary and typed out at about this sort of size so that it fits comfortably into his jacket pocket or into his hand, but then set out on the page in this blank verse format. His office called it speech form, others called it psalm form, as in the, the, the book of Psalms. But you can see why he did it. Because of course, what it, what it does is it gives him the rhythm, it gives him the pauses, it gives him the emphasis um, for those great speeches. And what you're looking at here is the key, key page from his address to Parliament on the 20th of August, 1940, at the height of the Battle of Britain, where he refers to the RAF and says, and you can see he's flagged it up for emphasis, never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. What it of course shows is although uh, uh, you know, he is rightly remembered as a great orator, he was really first and foremost a writer. He's an orator who prepares extremely carefully. And that of course brings me on to my main subject for today, and that is Churchill's war leadership. And I would say that few figures are better known or more instantly recognisable than Winston Churchill. He's the scowling, bow-tied bulldog with the famous V for victory salute and the omnipresent cigar who turned the British wartime establishment on its head and whose oratory gave the lion's roar that imbued the British people with the will to fight. That's Churchill, the icon. That is the Churchill that is today celebrated on the British five-pound note. Um, and if you look at the British five-pound note, you'll see you've got the key quote there, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears and sweat, from Churchill's first address to the Houses of Parliament on the 13th of May, 1940. And if you look closely, you'll see that the hands of Big Ben on the clock face are set to 3 p.m., which is the very moment that he delivered those words. Um, and of course, in that speech, his first speech as Prime Minister, he famously promised victory. Victory at all costs. <coughs> victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. Yet of course, behind the icon was a man. And behind the rhetoric, a question. How? How could Churchill seek to deliver that promised victory? His six minute speech on the 13th of May 1940 was an oratorical masterpiece but it contained no details of strategy or policy. So what, what were the key decisions? What was the strategy? How was it devised? Um, what I wanted to do with my book was to write an archivist's book, to strip away the layers of hindsight and subsequent interpretation, and to look at Churchill's leadership in the moment. Because it is perhaps a self-evident thing to say, but while waging war, Churchill and his contemporaries didn't know how it was going to turn out. And it's an approach that's perhaps best illustrated by a quote from a memoir by John Martin, a civil servant who joined Churchill's inner team as private secretary in the spring of 1940. And when reflecting on those momentous days, Martin was prepared to admit that with the luxury of hindsight, they may have formed the finest hour, but that was not how they'd seemed at the time. Then he wrote, they had been a time of agony piled on agony. And I think this brings me to my first serious point, which is that we need to remember that Churchill was often waging war, not from a position of strength, but from one of weakness. Now, he famously wrote of his assumption of the premiership, 
um, that I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. But it's easy for us to forget that there were many in the British establishment and among the political elite who didn't share that confidence. From the outbreak of war, Churchill had been back in Neville Chamberlain's war cabinet as First Lord of the Admiralty, the civilian minister in charge of the British Navy, the role he played at the beginning of the First World War. But he was felt by many to be an opportunist and a maverick. He'd first entered the British cabinet in 1908 at the age of just 33. And over the course of the next 20 years, he'd served in many of the major offices of the British state. But it had been a roller coaster ride. And in the decades leading up to the outbreak of war, he'd been excluded from high office. To some of his political figures, to, so, sorry, to some of his political contemporaries, he was a reactionary figure. A figure who had told the suffragettes that he would not be henpecked, who had <laughs> championed the costly Gallipoli campaign in World War I, and of course, who had dismissed Gandhi as a half-naked fakir. <laughs> Some had even dismissed his calls for rearmament in the face of Hitler's growing power as a cynical ploy designed to undermine Prime Ministers Baldwin and Chamberlain. Though, of course, it was a campaign that had gained him the support of large sections of the press and the public after the Munich crisis of 1938 and the pressure built on Chamberlain so that he had to bring Churchill back into his war cabinet. But Churchill's long and controversial career with its changes of party had made him enemies on both sides of the House of Commons. Here was a man who had started as a Conservative, switched to the Liberals in 1904, only to switch back to the Conservatives again 20 years later in 1924, um, allegedly allowing him to remark that anyone can rat, but it takes a certain ingenuity to re-rat. <laughs> such suspicions, rivalries and jealousies on both sides of the chamber were only exacerbated by Churchill's forceful personality, a combustible mix of eloquence, self-confidence and energy with a tendency to dominate that did not always make him a congenial colleague. Um, this is the man who told his friend Violet Bonham Carter at an Edwardian dinner party, my dear, we are all worms, but I do believe that I am a glow worm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this morning, um, I was lucky enough to be able to spend a couple of hours um, in the Ransom Centre looking at some of your collections um, here, um, including the papers of George Bernard Shaw, who had a long correspondence with Winston Churchill. Um, and in that, in an undated letter, which is probably written about 1946, you have a great, a great quote from George Bernard Shaw, who's staring at me from the opposite end of the room there. Um, and George Bernard Shaw wrote, you have never been a real Tory. A foundation of democracy um, and a very considerable dash of the author and artist and the training of the soldier has made you a phenomenon that the blimps and the Philistines and the stick in the muds have never understood and always dreaded. Um, now, going into the Second World War, the wonderfully named General Sir Edmund Ironside, Chief of the British Imperial General Staff, observed in his diary that Churchill's physique must be marvellous, but I cannot think that he would make a good Prime Minister. He has not got the stability necessary for guiding the others. And Jock Colville, a private secretary under Downing Street, in Downing Street under Chamberlain, who would later become a great friend and confidant of Churchill, was equally damning, writing in his diary that Churchill's verbosity and restlessness make a great deal of unnecessary work, prevent any real practical planning from being done, and generally cause friction. Leo Kennedy, diplomatic editor of the Times, in his diary for the 4th of May 1940, wrote, there's a drive against Chamberlain. I can't quite see who can advantageously take his place. Curiously enough, what is really needed is that Winston should be made to take a rest. He's overdoing himself and taking the strain by stoking himself unduly with champagne, liquors, etc. <laughs> dines out and dines well almost every night, sleeps after luncheon, then to the House of Commons, then a good and long dinner, and doesn't resume work at the Admiralty till after 10 p.m. and goes on till 1 or 2 a.m. He's got into the habit of calling conferences and subordinates after 1 a.m., which <laughs> naturally upsets some of the admirals who are men of sound habits. <laughs> now, six days later, of course, Churchill was Prime Minister. And Alexander Cadogan, senior civil servant at the Foreign Office, in his diary entry for the 9th of May, doubted that we would get a better Prime Minister than Neville Chamberlain. 
And I think we forget too easily that Churchill wasn't elected prime minister. He was there because the Labour Party would no longer serve under Neville Chamberlain in a national coalition and because Lord Halifax, the Conservative Foreign Secretary, was not willing to try and lead a wartime government from the House of Lords rather than the Commons. It was a Westminster coup from which Churchill emerged as the only leading Conservative with the popular credibility and political ability to form a government, the Conservatives being the largest um, party in the House. <clears throat> and in spite of Churchill's feelings of destiny, this did not mean that he inherited a strong position. Quite the contrary. To form his national coalition, he had to offer places in his war cabinet to the Labour leaders, Clement Attlee and Arthur Greenwood. To keep his own Conservative Party on side, he had to give the two remaining seats to Chamberlain, his predecessor, and Halifax, his main rival. So as he looked out around that famous cabinet table, he was not looking out on friendly faces or his own appointees. So how did Churchill respond to this? Well, he strengthened his position by making himself not just prime minister, but also minister of defense, which meant that the chiefs of staff, the military commanders, now reported directly to him instead of to the service ministers. He downgraded the role of the First Lord of the Admiralty, the Secretary of State for War and the Secretary of State for Air by demoting them from the cabinet. Um, and he made it very clear that he was now going to play the direct role in managing operations. In essence, he was going to be a chief executive, not a chairman. And the key, of course, is that the key change is that Churchill is now putting himself at the centre of the machine. He's bringing together the War Cabinet Secretariat that serves the Minister of Defence with the Downing Street machine, with his own advisers, and he's welding them into one inner circle. He was no longer one oversized wheel, putting a stress on the system from the outside. He was now the engine driving the whole vehicle. This meant, of course, that the system could now be designed around him and was therefore now better able to accommodate him and his rather eccentric work habits. The change in tone was summed up, I think, by these little red stickers, action this day, um, that the Prime Minister would attach to key minutes and telegrams. But it was a system that was immediately tested by military crisis. Churchill becomes Prime Minister on the 10th of May 1940, which is the very day that Hitler launches his Blitzkrieg offensive against France and the Low Countries. Neither the new Prime Minister nor any of his inner circle could have anticipated how quickly that military situation would deteriorate. Their whole strategy was predicated on the fact that the French army, assisted by the much smaller British expeditionary force and supported by the RAF and Royal Navy, would be able to hold the Germans in Belgium and Northern France. When German armour, supported by dive bombers, comes crashing through the Ardennes forest, simply bypassing the defence to the Maginot Line, the whole plan unravels, opening up a huge gap in the Allied flank, so that within days, just within days, the situation is desperate. And of course, Churchill is still constructing his cabinet. He's had no time at all to bed in, but now he's faced with a hugely difficult dilemma. On the one hand, he wants to fight, and he has publicly declared in Parliament that he will fight, and he clearly feels a duty to support his ally. On the other, he realises that every man killed, boat sunk, or most crucially, fighter plane shot down over France is not going to be available for the defence of Britain. So in the book, I look at how he navigates this crisis. And one of my conclusions is that he does so much more consultatively and much more politically than he's often given credit for. Because against this bleak backdrop, it's inevitable that French requests for further British support should intensify. Prime Minister Reynaud visits London on Sunday the 26th of May and he paints a grim picture of the French inability to carry on by land, sea or air before proposing that the Allies ask Mussolini for terms that would ensure Italy's non-belligerency. The thought being that that will then free up troops from southern France to come up and join the fight in the north. Churchill reports on this conversation to the War Cabinet at 2pm on the 26th of May, causing Cadogan to note in his diary that Reynaud doesn't say that France will capitulate, but all his conversation goes to show that he sees no alternative. And it's no coincidence that Lord Halifax, who's still in the Cabinet now as Churchill's Foreign Secretary, chooses this moment to raise the question of whether Britain should use the French initiative to investigate possible peace terms through Italy. 
It's a discussion which then continues over the course of the next three days in several subsequent War Cabinet meetings. And these are the debates, of course, that have been the subjects of a book by John Lukács, a play, and which are at the heart of the new movie featuring Gary Oldman. They occur at a most vulnerable moment and they threaten to derail Churchill's whole stated policy of waging war. I think Churchill's response to the crisis shows him exploiting to the full his power to convene the meetings and control the agendas. Because in effect, what he does over the course of the next two days is to hold two parallel series of war cabinet meetings. He restricts the discussions about an approach to Mussolini quite deliberately to a very small group. The five members of the War Cabinet, supplemented from the 27th of May by Alexander Cadogan and Archibald Sinclair, the latter in his capacity as leader of the Liberal Party and therefore a key coalition partner. And that group holds three separate meetings to thrash out the issue. In Admiralty House on the 26th of May, in Downing Street on the 27th and in the Prime Minister's room at the House of Commons on the 28th. They don't, those meetings, interestingly, don't take place underground in the cabinet war rooms, as the movie Darkest Hour suggests. Why would they? The bombing hadn't started yet. Um, but these then are the six men on whom that decision rests. Chamberlain, Churchill's predecessor as prime minister, still leader of the majority Conservative Party. Halifax, the powerful foreign secretary. Clement Attlee, leader of the Labour Party. And Arthur Greenwood, his deputy. Alex, um, Archibald Sinclair, leader of the Liberal Party, and Alexander Cadogan, the only civil servant present. With the sole exception of Sinclair, who'd served with Churchill in the trenches in World War I and thereafter as his personal military secretary, this was not a group of natural allies for Churchill. As I stated a moment ago, it's a war cabinet forced upon him by expediency and the needs to maintain national unity. He's not yet had time to assert his own authority and appoint his own people. Just think of the constant pressure that these men are under, suffering the claustrophobia of sitting almost constantly in smoke-filled rooms, interrupted only by the latest desperate news from the front. But by managing the meetings, by separating the political and military agendas, Churchill allows this group, the politicians, to focus on the key political issue. And he also contains the damage that might have been caused had discussions about possible peace terms taken place within a larger body. Now, the records of these tense, smaller meetings show a less black and white debate than is portrayed in the movie. Halifax wanted to explore the possibility of mediation in order to avoid bloodshed, but he was only prepared to go so far in ceding British independence. Churchill feared that any exploration of terms was a slippery slope and that Britain was likely to get a better deal after she had demonstrated her resolve and capacity to fight. But faced with a dire military situation, he has to be careful to take his colleagues with him. And so he allows the issues to be talked out at great length, sometimes acrimoniously. And you have to remember at this point, Churchill doesn't know how many troops they're gonna get off the beaches at Dunkirk. In the end, they managed to get away with 338,000. But the initial estimates are that they might be lucky to get away with 50,000. The support of Attlee and Greenwood, Sinclair, and ultimately Chamberlain for Churchill's position proves vital in countering Halifax's proposal, as was the information that the Prime Minister was waiting for from his chiefs of staff. A key report confirming that Britain would be able to fight with a reduced army um, and that the Navy and Air Force could defend the islands as long as aircraft production and civilian morale could be maintained. And ultimately, as long as we had the support of the United States. Churchill's final ploy on the afternoon of the 28th of May, once he had that report from the Chiefs of Staff, was to break the smaller war cabinet discussion halfway through, to call his first meeting of all his ministers outside of the war cabinet. He doesn't have to take the tube as the two meetings both take place in his parliamentary office. And to my mind, suggesting that he needed his resolve stiffening by others at this key moment does him a disservice. He was always gonna fight if he could, um, instead, seizing the moment, he addresses this wider group with a stirring extempore speech in which he outlines the serious nature of the crisis and pledges to go down choking in his own blood rather than countenance surrender. Uh, 
It's a bravura performance which wins an ovation from a hardened and usually cynical political audience. But more crucially, it wins their support for his policy of continuing to wage war. Leo Amory, Secretary of State for India and near contemporary of Churchill's and not an uncritical friend, was at that meeting and he recorded in his diary that Churchill's speech left all of us tremendously heartened by Winston's resolution and grip of things. He is a real war leader and one whom it is worthwhile serving under. And when the War Cabinet meeting resumed at 7pm, immediately after Churchill's speech, it was clear that he'd effectively won the argument against any expiration of negotiations. The timing of his intervention had been critical and he played his hand well, keeping his cabinet together and preparing his government for the collapse of their ally. Yet with the Battle of Britain and the Blitz about to be unleashed, he cannot have seen it at the time as a turning point. At the time, he was simply trying to find a way to keep fighting. And it is British weakness in the aftermath of the fall of France that influences Churchill's war strategy going forward. Churchill had promised victory, but again, how was he going to deliver it? From September 1940, London is being hammered by the Blitz. From the 7th of September, it is bombed for 76 nights consecutively, excepting only the 2nd of November. And no one at the time knows whether a modern city can survive such a sustained and heavy bombardment from the air. Both Churchill and his chief of staff, Ismay, describe a visit to a London bomb site by the Prime Minister that they put it in slightly different locations. And when Churchill's car arrives at the scene, it's quite clear from both accounts that he doesn't know how he's going to be received. It's clearly a moment of some tension. The arrival of the Prime Minister quickly attracts a large crowd. And he doesn't know how they're gonna react. Would their grief and anger be directed against him and the establishment for leading them into such peril and for failing to provide better protection? Instead, according to Ismay, Good old Winnie, they cried. We thought you'd come and see us. We can take it. Give it and back. And in Churchill's account, he notes how as, how as he departed, a harsher mood swept over this haggard crowd. Give it and back, they cried, and let them have it too. I undertook forthwith to see that their wishes were carried out, and this promise was certainly kept, alas, for poor humanity. Now, no doubt Churchill told this story because it chimed with his own attacking instincts. In a way, this is the real underground moment. But it's one thing to commit yourself to waging war. It's another thing to actually deliver a British offensive in 1940. Churchill's options are severely limited. How is he going to give it them back? How do you take the fight to the enemy? Britain cannot fight in mainland France, other than with small-scale commando operations or special operation executive raids, both, of course, of which Churchill encourages. Um, we can bomb Germany, and Churchill starts authorising bombing raids from the moment he's in Downing Street. But Britain lacks strength, and it's clearly going to take time to build up the RAF's bomber forces, while the Luftwaffe can hit London and Britain far more easily and effectively. I argue that one theatre where he can take the fight to the enemy, where he does have an army, where he does have a fleet, is the Mediterranean, especially once the Italians are in the war after June. Churchill is a lifelong imperialist, and he's certainly not ready to cede the British position in Malta or Egypt and Palestine. He also knows the Mediterranean theatre well, and he chooses it as a viable battleground. It's a decision which is a logical one, I think, seen within the context of 1940, but it's one that also carries huge implications for the future of the Second World War. Because once you commit to fighting in the Mediterranean, it's going to be difficult to get out, especially once the Germans move down, as they inevitably do into Yugoslavia and Greece. And if you divert resources to the Mediterranean, you are inevitably doing that at the expense of, the other, of other theaters. General Dill, as chief of the Imperial General Staff, argues for the defense of Singapore, reminding Churchill that it has always been the priority for British policy to guarantee the defense of Australia and New Zealand, something that Churchill himself has clearly signed up to in the past. But the Prime Minister now argues that we have to fight the actual war in front of us, not the hypothetical battle with Japan that may not come. And besides, he argues, if the Japanese try and attack Britain in the Far East, they will have to go through the American Pacific Fleet, which therefore ultimately guarantees British security. Unfortunately, as you all know, the Japanese come to the same conclusion and provide their own answer.
In my book, I look at the whole question of fighting with allies, because of course Churchill is desperate for allies. And I look at how he came to co-create the Atlantic Charter in an attempt to move the Americans closer to war, only then to suddenly and unexpectedly find himself in alliance with the Soviet Union after the German invasion um, in June 1941. It's a period that I think is perhaps best summed up by two quotations, both recorded in his diary by Jock Colville. On Churchill's courtship of the American president, um, Colville records him as saying, no lover ever studied every whim of his mistress as I did those of President Roosevelt. <laughs> While in his justification for his support of the Soviet Union after the German invasion, um, Churchill apparently remarked, if Hitler invaded hell, I would at least make a favorable reference to the devil in the House of Commons. <laughs> and interestingly, just this morning, again, here in your excellent, you know, in this excellent center, looking in the papers of, of Eddie Marsh, who'd served as Churchill's private secretary earlier in his career, I found um, um, this Churchill quote, apparently about Roosevelt and America, um, on a scrap of um, 10 Downing Street paper, um, where you have Churchill apparently saying of Roosevelt, I'm in favor of kissing him on both cheeks, but not on all four. <laughs> but the truth is, of course, that Churchill had no choice but to almost simultaneously in these months embrace the principles of the 1941 Atlantic Charter and the real politique of the 1942 Anglo-Soviet Treaty, even though it's clear right from the beginning that they're going to pull in opposite directions. He doesn't know how long the Russians will hold. He doesn't know how long the Americans will wait before coming into the conflict. He's embraced the devil and crossed the deep blue sea. He's shown himself willing to travel politically and ideologically in order to start constructing this grand alliance. This is someone who was an arch anti-Bolshevik from 1917. Um, but there's also very little doubt that his personal preferences and priorities lie in the West with the United States. But it's also clear that the American and Soviet attitudes to the post-war settlement, and especially to the fate of the Balkan and East European countries that border on Russia, are going to be very different. In 1941, these problems are hypothetical, and they're subordinated to the need to obtain military victory. But as the war progresses, Churchill inevitably finds himself caught between the contrasting attitudes of his two allies. Do the defeated nations have the right to determine their own form of government? Should Poland be forced to cede territory to the Soviet Union against her will? How might a policy of assigning spheres of influence in Balkan countries be reconciled with the clauses of the Charter opposing territorial aggrandizement and interference? Churchill was clearly aware of these challenges in 1941, but in the short term, he knew he needed both the United States and Russia. His heart yearned to bring the Americans into the conflict, his head knew that he had to keep the Soviets there. And we focus so much on 1940 and 1945 nowadays that we tend to forget how long the war was and how bleak some of the middle periods were for Churchill. The fall of Singapore in February 1942 had the power to do the prime minister real, real harm. It coincided with a renewed offensive by Rommel in the North African desert and with the escape of German battleships in the Channel. It looks as though, it looks as though Britain was being outfought and outmaneuvered in every theatre. British public opinion was outraged. Cadogan feels it to be the blackest period yet of the war. And Churchill later conceded that it was certainly not strange that public confidence in the administration and its conduct of the war should have quavered. And I think you can see his strength of feeling in some of the contemporary telegrams. This is a telegram that he sends to General Wavell, the theater commander um, in the Far East on the 10th of February, 1942. Um, and he says here, um, there must at this stage be no thought of saving the troops or sparing the population. The battle must be fought to the bitter end at all costs. The 18th Division has a chance to make its name in history. Commanders and senior officers should die with their troops. The honor of the British Empire and of the British Army is at stake. And of course, a few days later, Singapore capitulates and Churchill backs away from this hard line. But it certainly gives a sense, I think, of you know, how, how much he feels the loss of Singapore, which remains the largest British military capitulation in history. Um, Indeed, he now found himself criticized from all sides. 
To the Prime Minister of Australia, John Curtin, the loss of Singapore was an inexcusable betrayal. And viewed from Australia and New Zealand, Britain should have done more to secure Singapore's defence. Yet as the War Cabinet noted on the 16th of February, as soon as Singapore had fallen, in retrospect, it now seemed a pity that we'd sent the 18th Division. Churchill was simultaneously vulnerable to the charges of not having done enough to reinforce Singapore and of only having sent reinforcements when it was too late for them to be effective. And the same was clearly true of his decision to send the battleship Prince of Wales, which was sunk by Japanese air attack along with HMS Repulse on the 10th of December. And of course, it's the subject for Arthur Nicholson's book. Not only had the Prime Minister insisted on the ship's dispatch, but he'd also chosen to publicise the fact as a deterrent to Japan and as a reassurance to Australia and New Zealand. So my book then looks at how he manages the crisis. And I would argue that he manages it by facing down the growing opposition in the British press and parliament, by allowing debate and by calling a confidence vote in his government. But he also cleverly restructures his war cabinet. He brings in the socialist politician Stafford Cripps, the former ambassador to the Soviet Union, whose growing popularity was threatening to undermine Churchill. And by making Cripps leader of the house, and so responsible for managing government business, he ties him in to his own administration. He bows to pressure to create a new Ministry of Production, but he deftly avoids all attempts and calls to strip him of his role as Minister of Defence. And time and time again, I think, when you look in detail at key moments like this during the war, you see how tactical and political Churchill could be. But of course, all of that meant nothing if Britain didn't have victories in the field. And up to the summer of 1942, we'd been defeated in Norway, in France, in Greece, and now in the Far East. Churchill sacks General Auchinleck in the summer of 1942 because he believes that the Eighth Army has become demoralized. But he also does it because he needed at that moment to send a strong signal to both the Americans and the Russians that Britain could and would fight in the Mediterranean. Roosevelt and Stalin are both now pushing for a second front in France, but Churchill feels he needs to finish what has been started in the Mediterranean and is rightly skeptical about doing something too early or too small scale in Northern Europe. A theme running throughout the book is that Churchill's key decisions have to be seen as the products of the specific time, place and context in which they're made. So, for example, um, the policy of unconditional surrender must be seen in the context of the Casablanca conference that coined it in January 1943. The insistence on the complete surrender of Germany, Italy and Japan, even if their regimes changed, has been criticised by some for potentially prolonging the war and by undermining internal resistance within those countries to their fascist regimes. But in early 1943, in the absence of a second front in France, Churchill and Roosevelt needed to send a strong signal to Stalin, who had not attended the meeting in Morocco, and they needed to send a signal that they would not seek a separate peace with Hitler. With only limited gains in North Africa and no easy end to the war yet in sight, they also wanted a message that would bolster domestic morale while simultaneously sending a clear response to the horrific information that was now emerging about Nazi atrocities against the Jews. The decision to travel to Athens for Christmas in 1944 to broker a peace between warring nationalist and communist factions must be seen in the light of the agreement negotiated between Churchill and Stalin in Moscow two months earlier, at which the Soviet leader had apparently agreed to Greece remaining a British sphere of influence. To Churchill, who'd not become the King's First Minister to preside over the liquidation of the British Empire, the communist insurgency was more than a local difficulty. It was a litmus test of Russian good faith, and it was about preserving British influence in the Mediterranean, for which, of course, Churchill had been fighting since 1940. What comes through in all of the contemporary accounts is that Churchill was never happier than when in the midst of the crisis. Conversely, what he hated was periods of inactivity. And I think you can see that most clearly in the months running up to D-Day. The diaries of Generals Alan Brooke and Alexander Cadogan for the first half of 1944 record their personal frustrations with the Prime Minister and do so in terms that often reflect on his declining physical and mental health. 
So Brooks speculated that the Prime Minister might not last three months. He was failing fast, was dull, lifeless and missing the main points. And at other times it seemed as if Churchill had lost all balance so that Brooke felt as though he were chained to the chariot of a lunatic. But interestingly, Churchill did not take to his bed and have a nervous breakdown, as one recent movie would have you believe. His response instead was to seek the stimulus of action. So on the 16th of May, 1944, he asks Admiral Ramsey, the architect of the naval overlord operation, to draw up a plan. And this plan would have seen Churchill landed on the beaches on D-Day. The plan was that he was going to embark on HMS Belfast on D-1, transfer to a destroyer, and then if safe, make a short tour uh, uh, of the beaches. Now, of course, Ramsey does this because Churchill's commanded him to do it. Um, but the last thing that he or Eisenhower or any of the military commanders want is Churchill anywhere near the front line on, on D-Day. But constitutionally, there's only one person who can order Churchill not to go, and that's the king. And of course, Churchill knows that. So he uses a royal audience at the end of May 1944 to say to George VI, well, your majesty, wouldn't it be great as if in days of old, the king and his first minister could lead their armies over into battle together? And of course, King George VI, a former naval man himself, is initially swept away with all of this and inclined to agree. Um, but then is immediately told by Sir Alan Lascelles, his um, private secretary, um, that, you know, no way, that's a... a constitutional crisis, uh, and not only can you not go, but you're going to have to tell Churchill that he can't go. <laughs> Even then, it takes two letters from the king. This is the second one, handwritten on Buckingham Palace paper on the 2nd of June, 1944, before Winston grudgingly defers to your majesty's wishes and even commands. So my final chapter in my book, looks at why Churchill fought the 1945 general election at all. And having decided to fight it against his wife's advice, why he chose to fight it so badly. Um, exhaustion clearly played a part, but it's not the whole answer. I think he lost partly because he was a fighter and could not stop fighting. The very thing that made him such an effective war leader on the international front caused him to misjudge the public mood on the home front. Because on the home front, he should have played the chairman's role. He should have stayed above the political fray and presented himself as the national savior, the candidate of unity, the man to finish the job, which was exactly what the Conservative Party expected him to do. Instead, he said he was not ready to be put on a pedestal and he threw himself into vicious political attacks on the Labour Party. So why? In part, I think this is a return to his political roots. Churchill had been a passionate opponent of socialism throughout his political career. Even in his most radical phase as a young liberal politician in 1908, he'd castigated socialism as a barren philosophy that sought to pull down wealth, destroy private interests, kill enterprise, assail the preeminence of the individual, exalt the rule rather than the man and attack capital. As conservative chancellor of the Exchequer in the 1920s, he'd led the government opposition to the general strike. Now, Leo Amory felt in his diary that there was no getting around the fact that he, Churchill, is essentially a mid-Victorian Whig and means to fight the election on the purely negative tack of the socialist bogey. It was a conviction that I think must have been strengthened by Churchill's current view of the international scene, where he saw communist forces seeking to install themselves in Albania, Greece, Italy, Poland and Yugoslavia, and where he feared a consequent loss of democratic freedoms. The rhetoric and language he'd used to condemn the aspirations and actions of the communists in Greece was still fresh in his mind and on his tongue. Churchill was also finally free from the constraints of coalition and able to respond to some of his most vociferous critics on the left, people like Anurin Bevan and Harold Lasky, whom he felt had been sniping at him and undermining his foreign policy and his premiership. It may have been a big leap to argue, as he tried to do, that the British Parliamentary Labour Party would lead inexorably to Soviet-style communism. But I think in that election in 1945, Churchill was seeking to present two alternative visions for the future of Britain. And this went to the heart of why he'd become prime minister and why he'd waged war for five long years. 
In his speech to the Conservative Party conference in March 1945, he had acknowledged the need for state regulation and control in wartime as a means to a specific end. But once that end was reached, control for control's sake is senseless. He'd been fighting to preserve British independence and the empire, but also British liberties. Rather than break with the past, he was looking for continuity. Thus, in his final election broadcast, he looked back to the Britain of September 1939, arguing that it was already peopled by a far stronger, healthier, better bred, better led, better housed and better educated race than had been the case before the First World War. In his view, Britain did not need a brave new world. She needed to be able to return and pick up where she'd been forced to leave off. And when his doctor, Lord Moran, told him that there were two opposing ideas in the country, and that universal gratitude to him was tempered by the notion that he was not keen on this brave new world business. Churchill replied, the desire for a new world is nothing like universal. The gratitude is. Of course, he was completely wrong. Ultimately, Churchill fought and lost the campaign on the principles he believed in, using the only methods he knew. He didn't have the patience, time or energy to adapt his tactics. And as Anthony Eden said at the time, he would not have been Winston Churchill if he had. Faced with a multitude of challenges, Churchill couldn't always make the right decisions. Of course, in many cases, there were no right decisions, only different outcomes, all potentially difficult and damaging. He was often playing a weak hand with few resources. His preferred response was to live in the moment, to prioritize debate and then act upon the evidence in front of him. Many of those who worked most closely with him spoke about his ability to find and focus on what was most important. And Lord Moran recalled Clementine telling him that Winston always saw things in blinkers. His eyes are focused on the point he is determined to attain. He sees nothing outside that beam. Churchill gambled that one success would lead to another. This was about seizing the moment. The key to victory was to keep moving forward. So one battle at a time. That was how Winston waged war nor did he pretend it was otherwise. Speaking to the Commons on the 27th of February, 1945, in the aftermath of the Yalta Conference, he reflected on his role and he said, in 1940 to 41, when we in this island were all alone and invasion was so near, the actual steps we ought to take seemed plain and simple. If a man is coming across the sea to kill you, you do everything in your power to make sure that he dies before he finishes his journey. That may be difficult and painful, but it is at least simple. Now we enter into a world of imponderables and at every stage occasions for self-questioning arise. It is a mistake to look too far ahead. Only one link in the chain of destiny can be handled at a time. I argue that it was by keeping his eyes fixed on strengthening the individual links that Churchill helped to forge the chain which led to victory. Thank you.